Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Apocrypha Apocalypse. I'm Gary Machuda. And we are going to do a very important episode here on the Apocrypha Apocalypse. How many times have you heard the charge? The New Testament never ascribes authority to the Deuterocanon. There's never formal quotations. It's silent. Uh, maybe it just alludes to these books, but never ascribes any authority or inspired status to them. Never quotes them with the phrase, it is written, thus saith the Lord, it says in scripture, etc. I've seen it all over the place. I've heard it. I've read it in books. And I'm here to tell you it is false. In fact, there is one place in the New Testament that very clearly ascribes inspired status to a book. And that's found in Hebrews 11.35b, where it references the Maccabean martyrs in 2 Maccabees 6 and 7. And I'm going to show you in this episode that it has the same probative weight, maybe even higher weight, than a formal quotation. And we've done this before on the Apocrypha Apocalypse. Uh, the Apocrypha Apocalypse Challenge was around this, but I've done some more research. Like I said, I've written this article that I hope to be published sometime. And uh, so I want to bring that information to you. And that's what we're going to do today on the Apocrypha Apocalypse. So fasten your seatbelts, folks, because the Apocrypha Apocalypse begins right now. Now, like I said, we've done a video on this, the Apocrypha Apocalypse Challenge, but I've done additional research, and I think I've made a pretty compelling case that the New Testament does affirm one deuterocanonical book in a very explicit way, and I don't see how you can wiggle out of it. And uh, yeah, so I, I want to share this with you, and please share it with others. So uh, please uh, subscribe, like. Share this with others. Leave some comments. Uh, let's get this viral because people need to know this because, quite frankly, they're being misled by things like this. And here's a quote from Norm Geisler's book, Baker Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics, in which he says, there may be New Testament allusions to the Apocrypha, but there are no clear New Testament quotations from it. In any event, the New Testament never refers to any of the 14 or 15 apocryphal books as authoritative or canonical. All right. Well, yeah, this is very typical. I've seen this over and over and over again. And, of course, he steps on one of my pet peeves, I guess, that, you know, why do you want to limit the evidence to only a particular thing like a quotation aren't there other ways the new testament can refer to old testament books besides a quotation or allusion yes there are many so why limit it to that but nevertheless the charge is that uh, there's no uh, no uh, ascription as being authoritative or canonical well we will see that's not true. Uh, by the way, for those who are wondering what he means by 14 or 15 apocryphal books, that's because he divides like um, deuterocanonical sections as a book. So 
don't worry about that. And here's another one. This is from Isby. Says that the so-called Apocrypha, quote, obtained no scriptural recognition from the writers of the New Testament. And that is false. And so we're going to dive into it. I think I did a multiple part series on this before. I'm going to try to do it all at once. And so I'm going to try to condense it because I know a lot of you don't like the long format stuff. Some love it. So I'm going to try to hit a nice sweet spot between the two. And again, um, you know, the academic article, I'm going to try to make it available to you. Uh, it will be available for my patrons on Patreon for a certain subscription level. Uh, you have access to my academic articles. Um, I'm going to work with William Albrecht. Maybe we can make it into a bonus for membership as well. I, I don't know. Uh, William is the tech guy here at Pactra Apocalypse. So uh, we'll see if that's doable or not. Okay. But nevertheless, I'm going to give you a lot of the information that's in the article right here. Okay. So what's the text in question? It is 1135B. Now here's 1135. Women receive back their dead by resurrection. And others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Now, I've actually seen some Protestant apologists go to Hebrews 1135b, see the very first line about women receiving back their dead, and they say, it's talking about first kings, this has nothing to do with Deuterocanon, and that's it. <laughs> Which shows how shoddy their scholarship is that they didn't bother to read the rest of the verse and wonder why Catholics appeal to this verse in the first place, but nevertheless. So we're looking at the B part here, which is the others that are spoken of, okay? And others were tortured, not accepting their release for so that they may obtain a better resurrection. Now, there are three traits spelled out here. And what my first point here is that these three traits are for a specific group of people. This isn't just making wide references to all sorts of different people in the Old Testament. It has somebody specifically in mind. In other words, this group of people has three things. They were tortured. They would not receive release uh, for the sake of a better resurrection. Because I've run into problems, I'm not going to name names, where they try to take one or two of these things and say, well, you know, people were tortured in the Old Testament, it's not necessarily Second Maccabees, and obviously they're referring to them. Well, I don't even know if you could say people were tortured, but the fact of the matter is, that's not what the Greek gives. And so look at this little black square at the bottom of the slide. Uh, this is from, I think it's the Lexham um, outline, propositional outline, I think it is, where it breaks down the verse. And hopefully you'll see that when it's broken down, it's clear that uh, 35B is talking about specific individuals and not just scattered references to general things like tortured or refused release or whatever. Okay, so... Skipping the first line, 35, that's 35A, considering the women receiving back from the dead, right? Um, where it says main verb, the second one, it says, and others were tortured, okay? 
So these others who are tortured, and then we have adverbable, excuse me, adverbal <coughs> participle, which is the result. So these people who are tortured would not receive those who were not received release. Okay. And then the third line is purpose clause, the hinna, for the purpose of a better resurrection or obtaining a better resurrection. So you can see here, this verse 35b is stitched together. It's just three descriptors of a particular people, the others. Okay. So don't try to say, well, you know, others were tortured and this could be all sorts of different individuals. No, it has to be all three together. Tortured, re refused, release for the sake of a better resurrection. Okay. So let's go through each one in particular. Uh, the idea they were tortured, the word kimpanzo, okay, uh, tortured can mean to play the drum, strike repeatedly, as it is in 1 Samuel 21, 14, according to the Septuagint, or more specifically, as is in the case of Hebrews 11.35b, to be tortured on a wheel. Tampanon is the word for wheel, right? So here we have uh, a commentator, Protestant commentator says, this has a very specific meaning in Hebrews 11.35b. It's not only just being tortured, so it's not just a general reference to torture, but specifically being tortured on a wheel. Okay, being beaten on a wheel. So I guess it's the ancient version of the medieval rack or something like that. Uh, and this is important because since it's very specific, we can pinpoint where the reference is. Okay, now this is uh, Bauer, Art, Gingrich, and Docker, uh, Greek, English lexicon of the New Testament. <clears throat> and they say, that uh, timpanzo, okay, is um, is passive, okay. We're tortured uh, with the timpanon, a certain kind of instrument of torture. So we see the same thing echoed from what we've seen before, and then it gives a couple of uh, pagan references. And notice the next one says Second Maccabees six nineteen twenty eight. So this is a standard. Protestant lexicon, looking at the word tortured, references 2 Maccabees 6, 19, 20, because it uses the word tempanon, which is what's being referenced here. And indeed, uh, here we go. Here are the references. You have 2 Maccabees 6, 19, 2 Maccabees 6, 28. Both of them speak of the instrument of torture using tempanon, which is uh, the, the root of the verb being tortured in Hebrews 11.35b. So we have a linguistic contact here, and a very specific one too, by the way. Um, what about that second identifying mark? Not accepting release. Well, here, again, we find the Maccabean martyrs refusing release, even though it's offered to them. This occurs twice for example, in 2 Maccabees 6, 22 through 23, in regards to Eleazar, uh, the king suggests to Eleazar that he just pretends to eat meat, and then he won't be executed, and they'll be friends and things like that. 
And it says, quote, in this way, he would escape death penalty and be treated kindly because of their old friendship with him. But he, that is Eleazar, made up his mind in a noble manner and continued on. And so he declared that above all, he must be loyal to the holy laws given by God. He told them to send him at once to the abode of the dead. So here we have Eleazar being offered release. He just pretends to eat meat, and he refuses release. Okay, very specific. Fits like a hand in glove with Hebrews 11.35. And we see the same thing with the Maccabean uh, mother and her sons, who are also martyred in 2 Maccabees 7.24 through 28. But for the sake of brevity, folks, I'm not going to go through that, but you'll see the same thing. They're offered release, and they refuse it. Very clear. Finally, yep, so that they may obtain a better resurrection. Now, what's interesting here is the resurrection in the Old Testament as a whole is somewhat sparse. There's not a lot of references to the resurrection. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there isn't any re reference to the resurrection. There are. For example, Job and Daniel. And there's others, too, as well, and Isaiah and so on. Okay. It's just, it's fairly sparse, which is good because that's a limiting factor on who these people are. And of course, we find explicitly stated in the Maccabean martyrs, this hope for the resurrection. That's why they're accepting death is because they know that they'll be raised again. See this in 2 Maccabees 7, 9. At the point of death, he said, you curse fiend, you are depriving us of this present life, but the king of the world will raise us up to live again forever. It is for his laws that we are dying. 2 Maccabees 7.14. And when he was near death, he said, It is my choice to die at the hands of men with the God-given hope of being restored to life by him. Boy, that's almost identical thought to Hebrews 11.35b. But for you, there will be no resurrection to life. In Maccabees 7.23. Therefore, since it is the creator of the universe who shapes each man's beginning, as he brings about the origin of everything, he in his mercy will give you back both breath and life, because you now disregard yourself for the sake of his law. Second Maccabees 7.29, or 28.29, I beg you, child, to look at the heavens and the earth and see all that is in them. Then you will know that God did not make them out of existing things. That's interesting. That's a explicit reference to God's creation ex nihilo, which, by the way, you don't find explicit references in the proto-canon. Um, and in the same way, the human race came into existence. Do not be afraid of this executioner, but be worthy of your brothers and accept death so that in the time of mercy, you will I will receive you again with them. So again, that hope in the resurrection, refusing release for the sake of a better resurrection. By the way, this is not only very identifiable because, again, all three traits, not just one or two, but all three, referring to this group, is able to, for us to specify it has to be 2 Maccabees 6 and 7. Why? Well, it actually helps rule out another possible source, which is 4 Maccabees.
Now, 4th Maccabees also talks about the Maccabean martyrs, but it's a very different kind of work. It's a philosophical work. And what's interesting about 4th Maccabees is that it replaces these references to the bodily resurrection with the immortality of the soul, which effectively rules out that this could be a reference to 4th Maccabees. It's got to be 2nd Maccabees 6-7. It's got to be the Maccabean martyrs. Why? Linguistically, the words fit perfectly with the context. Second, literarily, all three traits are found within the Maccabean martyrs. And again, the better resurrection part excludes fourth Maccabees in contention. And uh, so you might, we, so I think even if one of those were true, let's say linguistic contact, I would feel confident saying it's second Maccabees. But when you add that with the literary, it really places it beyond doubt. And this isn't just my opinion. This is the effect this verse has had on Protestant commentaries. Now, when I first did this video, the Apocrypha Apocalypse Challenge, <clears throat> I cited 50 Protestant commentaries who link 2 Maccabees to uh, Hebrews 11.35b. I've actually gone one step further. I found another 11 commentaries, so for a total of 61 Protestant commentaries, all of them seeing a connection there with 2 Maccabees 6 and 7. There'd be a lot more, but not every commentary quote, you know, comments on every single verse. A lot of them skip this verse. Or they they turn it or they're doing it for practical application purposes. So they don't really dive into the uh, the Old Testament meaning of references. They're just applying it to Christian life. But look at here, 61 commentaries, all of them making the same points I just did. In a way, I'm kind of beating the same dead horse over and over again because there are people who refuse to acknowledge the obvious. And how much more obvious can you get to have this much agreement amongst all these commentaries? So you have linguistic contact, you have literary contact, you have this broad acknowledgement of consensus within Protestant commentaries. These commentaries, I went back to 1803 all the way to 2018. There's probably a lot more I could even find if I wanted to broaden it a bit. And it contains liberal, conservative, every denomination you can think of, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Calvinistic, Baptist, free will, Pentecostal, Church of Christ, you name it. It's all part of those 61 commentaries. They all see the same thing. And they should, because that's what the text is pointing to. So uh, that leg of the argument, I think, is really inescapable. Uh, it's just a question of willful denial, okay? <laughs> to willfully deny what the text says and what all the commentators see. Okay, so um, let's talk a little bit about the context, because I said it's not just a reference, but it's a formal reference. So let's talk about how it's used in Hebrews and what that has to say about the Maccabean martyrs in the eyes of the inspired author. Well, if you go to uh, the beginning of the list in Hebrews 11, the list begins as follows. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and conviction of things not seen. For by it, that's by faith, the men of old gained approval. Now, the word translated gained approval here in the NASB 
is translating the Greek word martyrio, and I give you the Greek there on the bottom, attested, okay? So these are the attested elders. That begins this whole list in which in verse 35, they've referenced the second Maccabees. Um, now, what's interesting about Margarito is how the epistle uses it. Now, I'm not talking about its use outside of Hebrews. I am specifically talking in context of how the epistle of Hebrews uses Margarito. And in that specific context in this book, it occurs seven times. And this is William L. Lane, by the way, in Word Biblical Commentary, one of my favorite commentaries. It occurs seven times, and he gives the references. And in each instant, the reference is to the witness of the biblical record. So when martyrio is used, it's used for the witness of the biblical refer record, according to William Lane. Now, that's very interesting. But I think we can actually learn a little bit more if we look at how Hebrews uses each of these seven. Uh, references. Okay. So let's begin outside of Hebrews 11 and see how the epistle uses Martyrio. And then we'll look inside Hebrews 11 and see how it uses it within the immediate context. Okay. Okay. The first one is Hebrews 7 8. It says, In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. The word is witness is a form of martyrio. And this is a reference to Psalm 110 that the epistle is talking about. So it's attested in Psalm 10 that 110 that he lives on. This is speaking about Melchizedek, by the way. Okay, so very interesting. Next one is in 717. For it is attested of him. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110.4. And you can see here, the word it is attested is a form of martyrio. And it's used as a formal introduction for the quotation. Now, it is attested, therefore, is on par with, it is written, thus saith the Lord, things like that. You can see it, it's actually used as a formal reference very clearly here in both passages, um, and this time, again, for the same psalm, Psalm 110. Then in 1015, it says, The Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, quote, This is the covenant I will establish with them in those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them upon their minds. Jeremiah 3133. So again, you have here an Old Testament text, Jeremiah, using martyrio, but notice the, how the martyrio is used. It's a formal introduction. Again, just like it is written, the scripture says, but this is actually a little bit more explicit. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying. So the Holy Spirit is attesting to us through the words of Jeremiah. Very strong language. Now let's look within Hebrews 11. So this is closer to the context. First, we have verse 2, which we just talked about, that the men of old gained approval. They were tested to. And notice it's passive. They were tested to. Then in 11.4, 
We have by faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he was dead, he still speaks. Again, this is referencing, it's using Martyrio twice, both referencing the events recorded in Genesis 4, 8 through 10. So again, it's used for reference to Old Testament scripture. Very interesting, isn't it? Moving on. Now we have verse 5. Verse 5 we see says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him. For he obtained the witness, Martyrio, that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Now, in the Hebrew text, it just says, Enoch walked with God and God took him. Very, very abrupt, right? But in the Septuagint, it says that Enoch was well-pleasing to God and God translated him. God took him. Okay. So this is a reference specifically to Genesis 5, 21 through 24, according to the Septuagint. And by the way, the same thing is uh, about him being well-pleasing. Well, pleasing is also found in Wisdom 4.10, but that's not germane to our uh, discussion now. And then you have in 39, verse 39, it says, All of these, all that have been mentioned previously, from verse 2 to now, having gained approval, again, we have martyrio being used, through their faith, did not receive what was promised. So again, Martyrio is kind of like recapping everything that's being used. So given Hebrews' formal use of Martyrio throughout the epistle, we can safely conclude that the elders, the e presbyteri or oi presbyteroi, if you want the Erasmian pronunciation, referenced in uh, Hebrews 11 is not mere exemplars of faith taken from history, right? He's not just thinking, oh, let's see, back in Hebrew history, let's see, who can we say walk, was pleasing to God and, and walked in faith? No, it's specifically exemplars found in the biblical record. In other words, our work that we've just did confirmed, here, let me go back, confirms exactly what William L. Lane says. Each instant is referenced to the witness of the biblical record. Plain as day, I think. And I think that's safe ground uh, that we verified what Lane says. Now, we could even go a few steps further because not only does Hebrews seem to be exclusively biblical characters in Hebrews 11, but the same is true for similar lists, Jewish and Christian lists, that, that do a, a similar thing like Hebrews 11 is doing. So here I'm going to uh, quote from Cosby. And... Uh, he says, quote, by contrast to Greco-Roman list, Jews and Christian list employ few examples outside the Old Testament. Then he quotes Philo, a couple works from Philo, Wisdom 10, 1 Maccabees 2, uh, 4th Maccabees 19, 4th Ezra 7, and 1 Clement 9 through 12. Okay, so that's all the examples. He says, they all draw their examples exclusively from the Old Testament. And he continues, composition of Jewish and Christian lists 
seem to indicate that their authors generally considered examples drawn from sacred stories to be more compelling as evidence than exempla from non-biblical sources. In other words, Christians and Jews, if they want to make an impression, they want to give the best witnesses, they're going to go to exclusively Old Testament witnesses. They're not going to fool around with things that are extra biblical, figures from history, that type of thing. That's unique for Christians and Jews in compiling such lists. And that seems to be the case here. So not only does the language of Martyrio cohere with these are all biblical personages being mentioned, and also it coheres with all similar lists, also Jewish Christian lists doing the same thing. All of that fits perfectly together. And um, yeah, so that brings up our next point. Now, someone might say, okay, fine. All that stuff about Martyrio is interesting, but what does that have to do with uh, verse 35? Well, see, the Hebrews uses Martyrio as kind of bookends. The, the fancy word's inclusio. Inclusio is like a literary bookend where uh, you start off a list and then you end a list with the same word or same idea so that everything in between falls within that word or idea, okay? And that's exactly what goes on here in Hebrews 11, because we have in Hebrews 11 too, I mentioned uh, by it, the men of old gained approval, they were attested to. And then at the end of the list, in the summary, all of these having been attested to, Martyrio, through faith, through their faith, did not receive what was promised. You see that? So, um, you have bookends. So that means that 2 Maccabees in verse 35 is martyrio. Okay. The inclusio is important. Uh, now in Thompson's uh, commentary, says the narrative is not merely about heroes of faith, however, for the inclusio in 11.2.39 indicates the author emphasizes that they were confirmed. Okay, so this commentator sees that, yes, they are confirmed as martyrio from verse 2 to 39. So, um, yeah, so this brings up an interesting point. Sorry, let's, um, don't know why that came up. Okay, now when I wrote, was writing my article, I was trying to think, does this connect all the dots or does it fall short? Because I think somebody could argue that this shows that 2 Maccabees was present in the Bible of the author of Hebrews, okay? But does that mean that 2 Maccabees is necessarily inspired, okay? In other words, maybe Hebrews' Bible included books that weren't inspired. For example, medieval uh, Latin Bibles, uh, were known to include books that were not canonical or inspired. They were there for useful reading and so on. And Septuagint, you know, the earliest codices, uh, some of them have extra books that are not, strictly speaking, inspired, but they're there because it's part of the liturgy. So if Bibles don't restrict themselves only to inspired books, you know, how do we know that the Epistle of Hebrews Bible 
didn't do the same. I mean, we even see this in early Protestant Bibles, too, where they retained the so-called Apocrypha between the covers of their Bibles, but the Protestants rejected their authority, right? They were just useful, holy reading and nothing more. And this point, by the way, is made, uh, made by, I hope I got his name right, Montefiore, I think it is. And he says, Second Maccabees form part of the Greek Bible so that our author is still taking his examples from the biblical records. In other words, Montefiore is kind of intimating, well, Second Maccabees, yeah, they were in the book, but um, they weren't really scripture. They were just found in the Greek Bible. So he's still using stuff from the Bible, but not strictly speaking, saying they're inspired. Uh, at least that's what I think he's intimating. Also, in, he notes in verse 39, our author has now made an imposing sweep of biblical history from its earliest beginnings to its latest events recorded in his Greek Bible. And I, I highlighted that. So is that as far as this argument can go? Well, first, I think if you can see, I think you have to concede at the very least, Second Maccabees was part of the inspired author's Bible. I don't think you can rule that out. It's just too clear and everybody sees it. So, by the way, this is a defeater for another tactic used by non-Catholics, uh, an appeal to the so-called Palestinian Septuagint, because Jesus and the New Testament uses as its preferred text, not exclusive, but preferred text, the Septuagint. And um, so um, in order to get rid of the possible embarrassment that, well, the Septuagint included these books, the deuterocanonical books, maybe the Septuagint limited itself during the time of Jesus only to the proto-canon, only to the Protestant books, and then later was expanded. That's the so-called Palestinian Septuagint theory. And uh, I think this is a defeater for that. There's no way there could be a Septuagintal Palestinian so-called you know, arrangement here. Uh, we know First century Septuagint included at least Second Maccabees, and we can establish others as well. Okay, but still, the point is, maybe it's an apocryphal book. Maybe it's something Hebrews author found in his Bible, but really didn't believe was inspired. Well, no, because Martyrio. This is something I, I recognized after I did my series uh, earlier. And that is, if you look closely at Martyrio and its usage, you find that that option is excluded. It cannot be true. First, it's clear that who is attesting is God is attesting. And I'm just going to rely on Protestant commentaries to establish this point. I agree with them too, by the way. It says here the passive voice points to God, whose attestation is conveyed through the scriptures. Hebrews 7, 17, 7, 8, 10, 15, 11, 4 through 5, 39, Philo, so on and so forth. Those who were attested in Hebrews 11, 1 through 40 are among the witnesses who sur surround the listeners in Hebrews 12, 1. Okay, but the point, important point is this. Attesting is in the passive. These figures are being attested by someone. And this commentary says God is attesting to them. That's why it's in the passive. And here we have uh, Guthrie. Guthrie says, the word rendered divine approval, Martyrio, 
appears in the Greek without mention of God, but it is clear from the use of the same verb in verse 4, confer also verse 39, that God is considered to be the agent. Okay, so it is not his Bible that's attesting to him, but rather it's God who attests to these people's faith through the Bible. Likewise, we have Vaughn, testimony, God born to them in Scripture. Uh, Goodspeed, the worthies of old, the divine commendation, which the Scriptures record. So it's the divine commendation that's being mentioned here. For in connection with this faith, the ancients were approved of God, i.e., received God's approving testimony, which is recorded throughout the Old Testament. Here's Lightfoot. These men, on account of their faith, received witness born to them by God and stand immortalized in Scripture. Who's attesting? God is attesting. How is he attesting? He's attesting through the Scriptures. Uh, here's Guthrie again. There's no disputing that these men received divine approval. Then he continues, indeed, the same would be true of the Gentile readers who had taken over the Old Testament as scripture and who would soon learn to recognize the divine stamp of approval on these men of the past. Here's Ellingsworth and Nita. One God's approval literally were witnessed to. Meaning, the meaning may more precisely be God speaking in scripture. Yeah, here's France. We're commended <clears throat> is more literally we're testified to. The reference being to the testimony of scriptures. Then it continues, from which the following account of faith will be drawn. The verb martyrio, he says, and continues, is prominent among this chapter. And he later says, marking God's approval of these people's faith conveyed to us through scripture. God attests. He's the one attesting through the scriptures. Okay, here's Peterson. In the record of scripture, God testifies to their faith and so made them witnesses, Hebrews 12, 1, uh, of the true faith for us. Faith-like commentary refers to making a public witness in order to gain approval. In this case, that's in Hebrews 11, God commends these Old Testament figures through Scripture. Who commends? God commends. Now, in the work, the New Testament concept of witness by Trite, he says, quote, The important question to be answered is, how were these men attested, or where is their testimony recorded? Ah, very good questions. The answer is obvious. Their testimony is preserved in the pages of Holy Scripture. And it continues, the testimonies of Scripture is the testimony of God, a point made very clear in 10.5 and following. Compare Acts 13.22, where God is said to bear witness to David in the words of Psalm 89.20 and 1 Samuel 13.14. Accordingly, the cloud of witnesses in 12.1 is nothing other than the heroes of faith mentioned in chapter 11, who are cited in the pages of the Old Testament. It is they who enjoy the, now notice this, approving testimony of Scripture 
and consequently of God himself, who speaks by his spirit through the written, written word, unquote. So it is the testimony of scripture and consequently of God himself who speaks by his spirit through the written, written word. Boy, I can't see written. Powerful stuff. Here's Ellingsworth. The witness of God is indistinguishable in Hebrews from the witness of scripture. And he continues the present verse, that's Hebrews 11.39, is concerned exclusively with Old Testament figures. He continues, Martirio's used of the witness of God or scripture, or most probably of God in scripture. So the attestation is that of God in, with, and through scripture. Now, this is true not only for all the figures mentioned in that inclusio in Hebrew 11, but it's also true for the use of those mentioned outside of Hebrews 11. There's no distinction in terms of probative weight. This is Michael's conclusion. Uh, he says in the Tyndale commentary, I think it is, Conor Star, says, we're attested to, that is, the scripture or God speaking in scripture testifies to their faith, says also 11, 4, 5, and 39. Just as it testifies to Melchizedek in 7, 8, which we read a little earlier, to Jesus's eternal priesthood in 717, which we read a little earlier, and to the new covenant, Hebrews 10, 15. So you see Michael's here is saying that God is attesting through the scriptures, just like those formal references are being made to Psalm 110 and Jeremiah. The same thing is going on here in Hebrews 11. God is speaking through the scriptures for these figures. That's what that inclusio represents. So, um, so I think when you take Martyrio seriously and how it's used specifically in the Epistle of Hebrews, you see that this isn't Second Maccabees wasn't just a book in the Bible. It wasn't like an apocryphal book, like an old. Luther's German translation or something like that, or the old King James 1611, that had these books in the appendix and said that they can't be used as scripture. Um, no, this in this context means God is attesting to the Maccabean martyrs through second Maccabees. That is an indicator of inspiration. That's what the epistle of Hebrews tells us if you want to take its language seriously. And I don't see how you can get out of that. Now, one way people try to wiggle out is to try to explain everything away. <clears throat> and this is kind of like, whenever I hear it, I see a person jumping on a plane, and this is the, the last ditch, you know, a safety parachute, because the first parachute didn't work. And it's often argued as a, a defeater, is that later on in Hebrews 11.37, there's a reference to a pseudepigraphical work, maybe the Ascension of Isaiah, about Isaiah's martyrdom. And so it's argued that, well, you know, this is also part of that inclusio, right? 37 comes. Sorry about that. Something happened with my computer. After all, Isaiah 37 comes before 39. 
that's part of the inclusio. So your argument, Machuda, proves too much. It proves that Isaiah, ascension of Isaiah, is biblical. It's inspired, right? So congratulations, you just destroyed the the um, destroyed the canon. Well, how do I answer that? Simply this: even if that's true, let's grant the case. Let's say in uh, Hebrews eleven thirty-seven, this is un undoubtedly a reference to let's say the Isaiah uh, ascension of Isaiah, which is considered a pseudepigraphic work. Practically, no one believes it's inspired or canonical. What does that do as far as our argument that we just laid out? Absolutely nothing. It has no bearing on it whatsoever. If it proves too much, then we have a problem. We have a book that's attested to by Hebrews that's in nobody's canon, except for maybe the Ethiopian Orthodox, maybe. Um, so it doesn't, it doesn't take away the fact that Hebrews does affirm 2 Maccabees as inspired. Okay? All it does is it adds another problem, which we're going to have to deal with, right? So it's not a defeater, and it's used as if it's a defeater. And the hope is like, well, if that's true, then, well, we could just ignore everything that's been said. We can ignore the Greek. We could ignore literary connections. We could ignore how Hebrews uses this term. We'll just forget about it and act like nothing happened. No, if you are a student of Christ and student of the word of God, you got to deal with it, right? So yeah, 37 is a difficulty, but it doesn't detract from what we said about 35b, okay? So I, I, I think there's ways we can solve this, or at least a good way to understand how this fits in the big picture and if you don't buy it, that's fine. But just realize that simply because I haven't put forward a good explanation in regards to verse 37 has absolutely no bearing on what I said about 30, uh, 35b, right? The point still stands, and it's an affirmation of the Catholic and Orthodox canons. Okay, so what can be said about 37? Well, remember in 35, we were able to establish not only who's being referenced, Maccabee Mars, but we're even able to establish the source from which Hebrews is drawing from, 2 Maccabees 6 and 7, right? We actually can tell you the chapters that's being referenced. Why? Because of the specifics involved. But what about here? Well, as you can see, the phrase, they were sawn in two, is a single Greek word. That's it, folks. One single Greek word. I would say it's virtually impossible to establish dependency based on a single Greek word, unless the Greek word is rare and um, very specific, and the context literarily lines up in a very unique way with another unique context, okay? Like for example, uh, Hebrews 1.3 with wisdom seven, okay? I think you can actually have dependency based on that one word, um, but that's all we have. We have nothing else to go on. Like I said, with uh, 
Mac, with uh, Hebrews 11.35b, with tortured, you come close. Uh, there just simply isn't anybody else that would fit that description. And, and uh, you know, and it, it's, it's there in the Bible. Not here, okay? You don't find a, a match for this. And you can't determine uh, dependency. And actually, you can't really even determine who the referent is or reference. Okay, let's see. I know my slides are a little out of order at this point. Let's see if I can circle around to where I need to be. Okay, majority of scholars, commentators, uh, they basically see this as a reference to an extra biblical source. It could be a written or unwritten source. Maybe it's Jewish tradition that's being alluded to surrounding Isaiah's death. Uh, that's what you'll find usually if you pick up a commentary. Let's say it. It talks about Isaiah, how he died, some sort of Jewish tradition, maybe ascension of Isaiah, maybe lives of the prophet, something like that. That's about it. Um, I, I don't think, in light of uh, Martyrio, I don't think oral tradition, unwritten tradition would fit. That doesn't make sense to uh, the context. Um, so it, I, I'm almost positive it's a written source that was believed to be inspired scripture by Hebrews. So I am kind of going out a little bit on a limb as far as that. But the thing is, is it really Isaiah? And how, what's the source for Isaiah? Because there are numerous possible sources. For example, the ascension of Isaiah speaks of his martyrdom as being sawed, but also lives of the prophets. Both of those were around in circulation during the time Hebrews was being written. So we can't even say specifically of his ascension or lives. There could be some other written source, too, that simply hasn't survived the ages that could be part of this. And then you have oral tradition that's uh, spoken of by various other things. Personally, like I said, I, I don't think it fits the context. So I don't think it's oral tradition that's being referenced. But, uh, but do you see the problem, though? We don't know who's being referenced. We think it's Isaiah because some other people say Isaiah was sawn in two. Um, but we don't know the source either. So that's problematic. And let's see if I have the right one. Yeah, and the other thing, too, is notice it's plural. Uh, they were sawn in two, not he was sawn in two. Which would, if it's Isaiah then it's apparently other people were sawn in two as well, which is a little problematic. Now, it could be something, something going on like this, that the preceding verb, they were stoned, may refer to extra-biblical tradition about the death of Jeremiah. And we read about that in the lives of the prophets. Also, Tertullian mentions it as well, that, that Jeremiah was stoned to death. But since stoning is a pretty common way of execution, when he says, says they were stoned, it may be Jeremiah and other people, unspecified people in scripture that were stoned. So it may not just be an individual, it could be more than one individual, or it could be an individual along with a group of people. Um, in which case it would be citing multiple texts, so it wouldn't just be one text. That's for stoning. And maybe the same thing is going on with uh, in 2 as well. Maybe the referent is Isaiah the prophet, but maybe there were other people who were sawn in two that would fit along with the description. We do know that some people were killed that way. 
you see this name is 3-1 according to Septuagint. And Daniel 13.55 makes reference to that as well. So is it an individual? Is it more than an individual? Is it a specific individual with other people? In that case, if it's more than one, we might be dealing with a, a multiple allusion to various texts. Um, and it's not even clear if it's specifically Isaiah. It's just commentators just look around to see well, who could possibly be mentioned. And they find in pseudographic works and other works, Isaiah pops up. So they say Isaiah. Um, but there's, there's another theory, though. I, I think this is intriguing. I think it's possible, but I can't prove it. But this might be another solution. And that is, perhaps the author of Hebrews Septuagint included a gloss. And so based on a gloss, they were actually referring to a book in the Bible and, and referring to it as inspired, but it's actually part of a variant. Okay. Why do I say that? Well, it's based on just a martyr. He raises another possibility. Isaiah being son, maybe it been a gloss that's found in an early variant manuscript in the Septuagint. In his dialogue with Trifo, section 72 and 120, Justin references variant readings or interpolations in his Bible that were not found in his Jewish opponent's Bible. In other words, he's charging Trifo actually Trifo's elders of removing embarrassing parts of the scripture, Trifo says, okay, what, where are we supposed to remove things from our scripture? And he, he quotes Isaiah being sawn in two, and then he quotes some other things. Now, what's interesting is these variants, some of the variants that besides the torn in two part, or sawn in two, shows up in other church fathers' scriptures. For example, he quotes from Esdras concerning Passover, and we find in Lactantius, in Latin, him acknowledging the same text. So it was in Lactantius's Bible as well, but it's not part of the scriptures that have come down to us. And he also makes a second quote from Jeremiah that appears to have been known by Irenaeus of Lyon, because Irenaeus makes mention of it as well in being in his Bible. This raises the possibility, since the, the uh, Justin speaking about Isaiah being torn in two is within the context of these citations, raises the possibility that maybe Justin's Bible had a reference to Isaiah being sawn in two, but this was a gloss or an interpolation or a variant of some sort. In it very early in the text tradition that no longer exist. And therefore, we can't find where the Epistle of Hebrews is quoting from because we no longer have that particular text in our scriptures. Um, I think that's a possibility. I, I don't think it can be proven unless maybe someday we'll find a manuscript somewhere from the Septuagint that includes it. But I think there's probability, good probability, that that might be what Hebrews is doing. And if so, it solves the problem. Because obviously, what Hebrews is doing is talking about the book, you know, being inspired and having this example in it. Um, but the book itself is inspired, right? 
So I don't think there would be that big of a problem. But even if you don't buy that, or you don't buy, maybe you think for some reason or other, you know for sure that this single Greek word is dependent upon a particular text, the lives of the prophets or Isaiah, Ascension of Isaiah or something. Okay. And you don't buy that. Um, there's still another option as well. It still doesn't follow that the whole canon collapses because of this, okay? Or even if you say, okay, fine, we can't identify the person, but this opens the issue of, well, maybe the canon isn't closed. Maybe there's another book that should be there. No, it doesn't. It doesn't, okay? Um, why? Because elsewhere in the New Testament, there are unidentified formal New Testament quotations. In fact, there are four formally quoted passages whose source eludes us today. We're not exactly sure who is being cited. Okay, The first one is Matthew 2.23. This was to be fulfilled what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. So you can see here a formal quotation. He shall be called a Nazarene that comes through the prophets. Now, I think because prophets is plural, this is probably uh, a multiple illusion, you know, so you won't find he shall be called a Nazarene, but you'll see multiple places in the prophets that allude to the fact that he would be called a Nazarene, the Messiah. Um, that's probably what's going on here. But notice, because of it, it's impossible to locate the exact source. Maybe something like that's going on in Isaiah 37, I don't know. But there's other ones, like John 7, 38. He who believes in me, as the scriptures said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. That's not found anywhere in the Old Testament. Okay? It's an unidentified source that's being formally quoted by Jesus. Here, and uh, also in Ephesians 5, 14, it says, For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you, unquote. Nowhere in the Old Testament do we find that sentence. Um, then you have James 4, 5. This one's actually hard to even figure out what James is saying, let alone where it comes from. And in that way, it's kind of like Hebrews eleven thirty seven says, or do you think the scriptures speak with no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. That's nowhere found in the Old Testament, but it apparently comes from scriptures. So my point is this, and it's very simple. If these unidentified formal New Testament quotations, we don't know where it's referring to, but they're being referred to formally as inspired scripture. If that doesn't undermine the canon, and it doesn't, right? It doesn't undermine it because we just haven't solved these difficulties. The canon still stands. No one out there says we're not sure what the Old Testament is because of these references. Then the same thing's true for Hebrews 11.37, because that's also unidentifiable. We don't know who's being referenced, where it's being referenced. All we have is a single Greek word, and it is formally being used as martyrio, but we just don't know who or what. See? So... It isn't that the whole house of cards falls down, Christianity collapses or anything like that, because we have tensions like this elsewhere. Um, 
so the idea that, well, you know, if what you say about Hebrews 11 is true, and it is, uh, verse 37 destroys everything. Well, no, it doesn't. It doesn't destroy everything, just like these passages don't destroy everything. It's, it's just a difficulty that maybe someday we'll be able to solve. Maybe someday we won't, you know. Um, we have to have intellectual humility and realize that we only have so much evidence to work with. And instead of going beyond the evidence, or even worse, dismissing the evidence that we do have, uh, we just need to follow what we have and be patient. And perhaps God in his mercy will shine some light on this and we'll be able to resolve some of these tensions. But regardless, it doesn't detract from what we said about Hebrews 1135b, where it is a formal introduction on the same level, I think maybe even stronger than it is written or something like that. Scripture says it's probably closer to thus saith the Lord. Um, and there's no doubt it's Second Maccabees. Only willful denial would make somebody doubt that, I think, in my humble opinion. So if you enjoyed this video, folks, please subscribe, like, leave some comments. Got lots of exciting things coming up on this channel. We're going to be revealing them soon. Uh, as soon as William and myself and David can get together, we're going to do a live session. We're going to show you some of the really cool stuff that's in, in store at this channel. Tell your friends, like it, leave comments. We appreciate it. helps the algorithm so that more people get this. Share this video because we need to dispel this myth that the New Testament never affirms the Deuterocanon. All right. Till next time, I'm Gary Machuda. Have a great week. Bye-bye.